Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Crystal Fall, I'm the editor of the Toolkit. And my guest today is filmmaker Nafu Wong, talking about her new film, One Child Nation. Uh, Nafu and I got to talk, I think it was like two winters ago, right, with Hooligan Sparrow. And and so if you go into the archive of this podcast, that was a great conversation there. And um, Nafu's story in terms of coming here and becoming first a journal, you know, going through a journalist path and then becoming a filmmaker. Uh, it's really an incredible journey, um, but I just don't want to rehash that. But uh, it's certainly uh, when you when you see this film or if you've seen this film and you love this film, and uh, we're going to be talking about that today, I, I would highly recommend going back into that. Um, but one thing I wanted to do off the top, though, that I think is important that we set up for this film is Hooligan Sparrow, which was your first feature and which got shortlisted for uh, an Oscar two, two winters ago. Uh, that film did not leave you in a good situation in terms of the Chinese government and your family. And I, I, I want to set that up here because I think we're going to be talking about the filming of One Child Nation. And I think part of the story here is even just you going back there and making a film. So if you could, after Hooligan Sparrow, what was, uh, you were not popular. I don't think they were going <laughs> to sign, give you a permit to make more films, No. No. <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, that after Hooligan Sparrow was released in 2016, and for two years, mm-hmm. I didn't go back. I didn't try to go back. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure if it was safe for me to go back. And because um, during the making of Hooligan Sparrow, um, I was interrogated by the national security agents. And especially when Hooligan Sparrow was in the news a lot after its release and leading up to when it was shortlisted, the government really um, were freaked out. They contacted my family. They made sure, like, my family to tell me that I couldn't speak negatively about the government. Mm-hmm. And so when I started One Child Nation... And that's one thing, you know, I remember that happening with Joshua Oppenheimer's film, too, which is that the award season could be silly, but it really does when a film yes. like yours does yeah. get put on that platform. It's yeah. not like they weren't aware of it. Suddenly, yeah, that they, is a different thing, exactly. right? They were, when when that happens, when the film gets more exposure outside of China, they are more concerned because now they realized mm-hmm. if it's getting any awards, then it means more people are going to see it. More people are going to know it. And that's when they, like, the more popular it is, in fact, like they are more concerned about it. Like mm-hmm. if the film doesn't do any mm-hmm. do well, they're okay, they're mm-hmm. happy. Yeah. So yeah. So when I started One Child Nation, I wasn't sure if what would happen if I try to go back. Would they stop me at the airport? Would they stop me at the customs, or would they allow me to go in? But then the moment I show up at the subjects' place, they would show up, and that way, not only that, I think. In fact, that would be the worst case scenario because it would jeopardize the filmmaking and it would also bring danger to whoever I try to film. Mm-hmm. So around that time, I reached out to a great friend of mine who is a filmmaker, Jalin Zhang. And uh, we went to NYU's news and documentary program. Um, she graduated a, f- a few years before me. And I asked her if she was willing to collaborate with me and to co-direct and produce this film. And she lived in China at the time, and she said, of course, and I was happy that she... Was she she, born in China like like you? Yeah, like me. We we just came to the United States for graduate school, Mm -hmm. and she returned afterwards. Um, So she said yes, and she started doing underground research. And around the same time, um, I was doing research in the U.S., and soon after... 
um, I think a couple of months later, she also moved to, to the U.S. and uh, lives in Massachusetts since then. Um, and we, too, uh, started filming people in the U.S., activists who are in exile, human rights lawyers, all the people. And at some point, I really, really wanted to go back to China. And I also felt it's been two years, a little bit over two years now. Maybe it's okay. And I really needed to go back. My you, son, you also yeah. Yeah, you had a baby. Yeah, my had, son you, was you wanna, two months old. You want to bring your baby home to grandma and grandpa, exactly. right? Everyone, I'm sorry, grandma. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> Thank you. You know so much. You know so much about. <laughs> I saw the film. Let's talk about your father's death. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, so my family wanted to see my gra- my my son, and um, I decided to go back with my husband and our two months old son. And I wanted to use that opportunity to test the water. Because you see- first tested as a person, just going back to yes. visit family, right? Yeah. So we tested. We went back, mm-hmm. and I decided. During that trip, um, I was just going to stay within my family, mm-hmm. within the village, and not to try go out. And if the government were going to take any action against me or confront me, then I could argue, like, look, I'm a young mom with a infant son, and you're going to do this. And so during that trip, nothing happened. There was no direct confrontation, and I returned um, to the U.S. Of course, during the trip, I filmed with my family. The stuff that you shot with your family, yes. which I, I imagine yeah. they're often yeah. holding your baby. It's just you and, yeah. and your 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 mom talking. I, that was kind of part of that trip, right? That was uh, before, actually. Oh, oh, before my that. mom came here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> my mom came here. Can't stop uh, those grandmas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I came back, and then. Um, I think it was around March or uh, February or March mm-hmm. before even before then. Um, I got an invitation from Shanghai International Film Festival, which um, every film that got invited had to go through the National Censorship Board. And it's they, kind of gutsy of them to invite you, right? They invited me to show my second film, I Am Another You. Oh, uh, okay, okay, all right. Which is Ooh. about um, America's, homelessness and mental illness so they wanted to show that film and then we'll show that one they'll show that one (laughs) (laughs) they will show that anything bad about america (laughs) so um i started getting official uh interview requests from like a lot of like Mm state-owned media and that was when i thought okay that was totally fine Mm -hmm. now i could go back and i started going back more and more so and you deal with this in the film but because I'm curious because at least the film kind of outlines a, a certain growth and a certain change in perspective of yourself uh, with this. The, the one-child policy, which was in place until very – what was the years on that? It was, it was December 2015 that it ended. It, it started in 1979. Okay. Uh, it was a policy that very much kind of affected you. Um, your parents were, I guess, to a certain degree, rules breakers, you know, in the sense that – um, they had a second child later. Um, but it was something that I, my sense is when you started this project, it had a certain connotation and a certain meaning to you that I think sparked you into it. And then that, that I, it seems as if that evolved and changed quite a bit. Is that, is that a- when, when I started, um, or even before I started, I thought, um, I was very familiar with the policy and I knew everything about the policy because I literally, like, I am as old as the policy. There wasn't a day of my life that the policy didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, but then as soon as we started filming and researching and I just realized how little I knew 
and so many things that were restricted, so many things were censored, and I what I knew was the surface, and I also realized that a lot of the information that I kind of like normalized. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a wall uh, on the street you go past every day, or a lamp that you start paying attention to its existence, and you never question, you never see it that way. And then suddenly, that now I was making the film and questioning myself and kind of reviewing all the memories I had about the policy growing up, and I started seeing it differently. Was that the initial impetus? Was that sense of going past the surface or, or, or this film becomes a personal journey, but I don't know that that was necessarily the starting point. Mm-hmm. Was it more of tra- that idea of trying to go beyond that surface understanding of it? Um, I think it was when I became pregnant and I suddenly it affected how I think of the world and the first a few weeks of a pregnancy after I realized I was pregnant, I thought a lot about the future, about now, and about my child's life, and everything in the world is related to him. Um, How I wanted to see the future would be, what the world would be, and I became extremely protective and wanted to do anything I can to protect his life and his future. And it was that sense of protection and the fear of anything bad would happen to him made me start thinking about the one-child policies, the women and the children. And I suddenly felt I couldn't imagine like living under the, that kind of fear of not knowing whether as a woman you can protect your, you can protect your child or uh, whether it's during pregnancy or after the child was born, what that would be like. Um, to live under that fear. And that's when I started um, trying to understand more. And I started asking my mom what it was like for you to uh, be pregnant with me, what it was like for women that your age, your coworkers, and what have you seen. And then she talked more about her experience, what she witnessed, and that kind of like opened up more. Did this start off, I mean, you talked about the fact that in the beginning you're in your village and you're talking to your family. And I think that my sense of that is that's almost like a baby step in terms of started being able to film in China, but it becomes that interrogation of your family that look at this policy through your family and some of the things that you revealed there. And then what you just explained with your, your, your child, you and your child, your child attached to you is, is very much in this movie. Is that, was that in your head? I think most people, because if they know your other two films in which you're, you're, you're in them, I think the assumption is, oh, that's just, that's how, just how she works. Mm -hmm. But I, I, is that how you started with that idea that this was going to be, your family was going to be so prominent and that you were going to be on screen and that, that every film I resisted (laughs) and they became somehow like, um, when we started, I didn't want to be in the film. as like I'm another you too like when I started I didn't want to be a part of the film and as this one too um, all the stories about my family and my own childhood and um, what ended up in the film like my name my story about my brother and it was something that I would talk to my co-director to our producer Mm. and 
the more I talk and sometimes like the people would react it's like oh how could you not like put that in the film that's a story that's amazing that's uh so emotional and that's so unique these are conversations that are being had in post is that correct yeah okay. oh even during production mm-hmm. at some point of the production too right okay. yeah because um, the way that we work is also like I like to edit every time after shoot one trip so the post and the production is sort of like it happens simultaneously in a way you do a trip you come back you yeah, cut what you and, got and see what you got almost yeah. like it's like a writing process almost I imagine yeah so a lot of this conversation happened and they'll be like you have to this is a part of the story and initially especially the conversations between me and Jali my co-director is I will be like but a lot of families had this and she as a Chinese actually was surprised she said oh like I don't have like an aunt or an uncle who abandoned a child and basically my family or my village is a it's a like a micro universe of this entire country entire the one child policy so it was then gradually and we also the more we talked to people the more is like oh Nenfu your story has to be in there and mm-hmm. and I also realized if we don't have that personal experience personal mm-hmm. connection when we just are looking at a character's story um, especially um when we put together in the editing like a one character story it's really hard to feel emotional resonate with that person when you don't know how to look at it mm-hmm. and i think what i try to do and i think in all three films um to a certain extent is to try to put the audience in my perspective and mm-hmm. really to feel how i feel well one thing that is that i thought was i don't know if the word's brave but we'll use the word brave is in that sense the, one of the reasons that getting it from your perspective is you learn a lot about your family. There's mm-hmm. a there's a story with your 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 aunt and your uncle, um, but there is both a sense of shock and a, I, I'm going to use the word anger. I don't know, but a little bit of disappointment, a little bit of anger, of of kind of seeing your families, the generation older than yours, uh, how they handled this, and. And then also, so that, but also uh, uh, seeing it also an understanding of, I think there was a line in there at some point, you know, your aunt is constantly saying, well, it was very strict. It was very strict. And and this kind of understanding which you bring to it, which is that when the government is making so many decisions for you, Mm -hmm. it's hard to take personal responsibility. And I think that's, that was an element there that like, I don't know that you can make that without like kind of like almost a personal point of view of the film. Well, you can, it's just, it's not as, as direct and as powerful as I think, I think you, you probably were able to do it with yours. Yeah, I think definitely um, some of the, 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 the thing that you were talking about when they said the policy was so strict. If there's spoilers in documentaries, I feel like there are. So we'll, we'll just <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was a moment that I actually felt uh, really frustrated when I was filming and interviewing them because one after another person everybody was saying oh yeah like when I asked them do you hate the policy what do you think of the policy I still support the policy I thought the policy was necessary mm-hmm. what could we do a policy is a policy and there was that sense of helplessness that really frustrated me and confused me like how could you as a parent who saw and left your child die and still say I didn't have a choice and 
everybody said so. At some point of like filmmaking, I almost thought, ah, another person saying this again. I wanted to shut off the camera and I just don't want to listen to them the same narrative again. I was looking for someone to tell me something that could help me understand why they didn't take any action, why they didn't resist, why they didn't fight for their child's life. None of them did that. And I came back and it was in the editing process. I felt I was stuck. Like I, how could I explain that a whole nation was on board with a policy that literally made them abandon or kill their own child? And no one had explained to me why they did that. And so I know like there was one aspect of propaganda, there was like in violence enforcement, but none of those explained to me how that could um, almost like fight against human biology instinct. Like as a mother, I could not imagine that myself doing it. And then it was like over days of frustration and editing, how am I gonna ex- like get over this? And suddenly I thought, why don't I just convey that? Convey that sense of everybody's helplessness and show it in the film and let people see what I see and let people really um, encounter the what they're like deeply, um, there is like in almost every country, it's like when there is a, whether it's Holocaust or any kind of a war and people are just simply following the order and felt like they had no choice. And that was the same mentality. It wasn't anything different. You know, I, I recently revisit, revisited uh, Joshua Oppenheimer's films, who I think consulted with you on this film. Is no. That, no, he didn't? No. no. Okay, I'm sorry. I thought... I thought oh, wait. Uh, the act of killing the... Uh, no. Yeah. no, 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 no. Oh, okay. Mm. I'm sorry. I thought I made that. Maybe I made that up for more. But it, it, there, there is that element of of when it's you Jonathan juice. Jonathan Oppenheim, the editor who consulted on this. That's why I was looking at <laughs> my notes. Oppenheim. I was looking at my notes. <laughs> I just wrote J. Oppenheimer. No wonder. But no. But there was this element though of 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 that thing of um, when when one feels so much guilt or they've buried something, uh, that act of denial is so strong. In and, and, and you see. You see that, and you can almost see it in your aunt too, like the repetitive nature of it. Mm-hmm. And you can, as yeah. she, as you, as she, that, that sense of uh, what's behind that and the pain behind that. Yeah. It's very, very powerful. Yeah, they almost like was memorizing some lines that they learned, and they just repeat over and over. Mm-hmm. And it was that same line: the policy is the policy. What could we do? Yeah. Um, before we leave the village, I want to talk about this, how how you filmed the rest of this. Was there a concern in terms of, and I, I asked this simply off of Fool and Sparrow, in which you know the government's first call was to was to your family. By looking at the village, um, you, you got. I watched it together this morning. That threat you get from the yeah. um, head of the village's wife at one point. Is there a, you're in some ways starting with the familiar, familiar might. Is a, is a smart choice filmmaking, but it's also probably a baby step. You're in familiar grounds with family yeah. and it feels safer. But in retrospect, is, is this something, because your family is still there, is this something that you worry about again in that sense of, from a different way based on, you know, what Hooligan Sparrow was, what they went through? I talked to my family about, uh, especially my mom and uh, and my brother about the film and they didn't seem like, concerned Mm -hmm. and I also from Hooligan Sparrow the experience the government when they contacted my family they wanted them to pass a message to me like oh don't 
don't talk um, negatively outside of China when monitoring you like this. And when we finished editing and the film, we looked at it. Like what what was interesting is really like in throughout the film, there were only the journalist who lives in Hong Kong in exile,、mm-hmm. and the artist who chose to speak out, and the Utah couple. Like all these people were. Critical about the one-child policy, and the rest of them were all positive. So even if the government look at them now, all、mm. of them were saying the policy was great. Okay,、um, you do eventually decide、um, that you need to, or maybe you decide you got to. Not only is this film going to move outside your village,、um, you decide as a filmmaker to move outside your village.、Um, and I'm, if I'm remembering correctly,、uh, this became a. Both from a security standpoint, but also a coordination standpoint of how you and your co-director would kind of handle this.、Um, uh, and part of this is a lesson, and I think in terms of safety and being precautious, but also just a matter, just the logistics of so you can go film stuff, right?、Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about what you guys did to what you ladies did to to make this happen? Because it's yeah it involves apps and everything. Yeah,、mm-hmm. she she lives in Massachusetts and. Um, when I would go to China to film, and we would try to minimize the crew number and to be like really under the radar,、um, and the experience of Hulk and Sparrow is like you really need to act fast, like go in and out of place really quickly before the government realizes you are there, and that like. So you can't also take public transportation. You can't take the train, the flight, because that's when you show up your ID, and the government in the system would immediately know where you are and where you are going.、Mm-hmm. And don't stay in the public hotels. That's also one way that they could see you register your ID, and they see.、Mm-hmm. So. What we would do is, she would track me down on the GPS, a real-time tracker on her phone, and she could see like where I am down to the second, and then we would plan all the transportation using private cars and staying at the private places and not never public. And whenever we need to film someone, she would contact that person and set up the time and. Place where I was going to meet with that person and film, and I don't directly contact that person, so there is no trace of if somebody's monitoring my communication or the subject's communication. They wouldn't see like me, or they wouldn't connect me and the subject. So I would show up once I know like Jaling would con- contact with me,、mm-hmm. and then. Almost like pre-produced. I'm, I'm letting you probably know. Well, there's a window. We got to watch the light. You know, kind of like so you can walk in and actually, yeah, and actually yeah. do it, right? Yeah, and then,、um, and then once I'm there filming, and if in two hours or six hours, if I on the GPS, I am not at the place I was supposed to be, and then she knows something was wrong, and if she loses in touch with me in two hours or four hours or six hours,、mm-hmm. uh, for the length of time, each. Each time we have a plan of like what to do. Like if it's six hours that I was out of contact,、mm-hmm. what does that mean? Like who's the closest people,、um, the network that she can reach out to on the ground that、uh, human rights lawyers or activists that I know and that can help. And if it's out of like twelve hours or twenty-four hours, who are in the network and the producers and her are in contact every day too in the U.S. that can help. So we all like. 
try to make really detailed emergency plans and to prepare for the worst. And then there was there was a time where you and it's a pretty powerful this you did feel a need to get on public transportation at one point, right? To because you wanted to see the route of of a trafficker, right? Yeah, he was um, he was a convicted human trafficker, but what he did was he sold babies um, to the orphan to the state owned orphanages, and when the scandal of the orphanage would. Um, make profit out of uh, international adoption. When the scandal came out, he and his family were sentenced. While those orphanage um, officials, they had no problem. So I wanted to follow him and see the route that he would take from one province to another province and take the babies on the train. And it was a 12-hour train ride, and I debated and eventually decided that I really needed to be on the train to in order to visualize this part of the story. So that was the first time that I took public transportation. And we didn't know what was going to happen. And as soon as I got on the train, I realized that there were like the officer, the train officer were paying attention. And shortly, they came to me and asked, what was my relationship with the guy? what my name is and asked me to show my ID, uh, where I was going and why I was there. And one officer questioned me around and I answered and then he left. And another officer came, asked another set of questions. And then I was very concerned that I didn't know what was going to happen, whether they were going to report to the upper level or were they going to put my na- name in the system and then realize who I who I was and what I had done in the past. And I made a decision I needed to get off this train as soon as possible. It was supposed to be a 12-hour train ride. And the next the next stop, it was like in like, so I quickly got off at the next stop. And it was midnight in the middle of nowhere. And because we had done a lot of preparation, Jialin at the time had hired a private driver who was driving along the railroad route. Kind of paralleling the, uh, yeah. the train, right? Yeah, and the idea was if anything like this were going to happen, um, they would be ready to pick me up. Mm-hmm. And But we didn't expect that it would happen so soon. We were thinking like maybe three or four hours later, and this was just like an hour mm-hmm. or less. And so it was, they were not, anywhere near the station and I was in the middle of nowhere like not close to a city not close it's completely dark and we Jalen is watching me on GPS and in the meantime coordinating with the driver and we can't the driver and I couldn't we were afraid like we if we communicate directly something was going to they can track so it took several it's not like when your uber driver calls you (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was uh it was a pretty dramatic night um i i assume that in watching this because it does it does become one does start seeing these things through your eyes not just as a filmmaker but but almost um as, as a for lack of a better word, a character in, in, in the movie, in, in the narration. Uh, my assumption is is that um, the trafficking, mm-hmm. the kind of um, 
that kind of pipeline also from China to mm-hmm. uh, parents in, um, in uh, the States looking to adopt babies, which was a, a profitable market. My sense is that that element and the discarding of the babies was possibly the most eye-opening to you and the part that it became this kind of exploration, right? Because I don't know that you, I didn't get the sense in watching this that you went into this to mm-hmm. reveal yeah. that that yeah. element. That was something that I learned, uh, especially the um, corruption in the international adoption system. That was something I learned during the making of the film. I didn't know how much it cost to adopt a child and all the fee involved and how much money they need to pay the orphanage. And I also never had a question why there were so many Chinese adoptees like <coughs> among like uh, here in the states here in the states but also internationally in mm-hmm. every country uh, is Europe as well especially and and so while we were making the film um, somehow we learned there was a journalist that did some um, we learned about the potential fabrication in the adoptees um, stories and then we found this journalist and we read his book. He actually did the research several years ago and eventually the government censored his message and his his article and then he had to move to Hong Kong. And so all of those things that I learned was shocking to me that how the government, when they realized that there was a profit to make um, in international adoption, adoption system, they would allow a pregnant woman to get to carry the baby to full term and give birth and then after that go into the house and then take the baby away saying mm-hmm. that they violated the one child policy and then put the baby in the orphanage and claiming that this was an orphan. Um, it's I think going back to what we were talking about before, because this becomes a sprawling, for lack of, I don't mean sprawling in a negative way, but I mean, we, it, it becomes a large, this history is deep. There's lots of elements to it. It, it. You were talking about this need to get on the train and film it yourself. It, it becomes something which I feel gets folded into the story through that idea of your awareness of seeing, learning more about some of the, your own family's history, learning more about the discarded babies, and then this, almost this kind of journey the the film takes an arc of kind of a journey into the underside of this. Mm-hmm. Is that was that something? Because I, I I think about this in terms of the sprawling aspect. Was that did that become like an organizing principle of of I can I can tie these together and I can structure this in editing in editing through through the idea that you're kind of discovering it. Yeah, I think. So um, in the editing, I think from the very early on, like with apologies, about, I should. I, I did you cut this one yourself again, or did yeah, you? Okay, yeah, I right. did. In the editing, like from the very early on, is like trying to think what is the structure, and I think um, if I try to remember the very early like like uh, graph that I was trying to draw, it's like you need to understand what is the one child policy, how did it come about, and how it was introduced, and then why all the people were um, on board with it, and then the consequences of it. And the consequences, we wanted to start from like, let's say the first very direct 
basic, um, the direct consequences, and then is the um, sort of like indirect, but also um, the consequences that people didn't foresee. Um, that involves like internationally adoption too, and the trafficking. That mm. wasn't something that when they initiated the one-child policy, they could see, oh, like this could trigger um, the profit, the whole like incentives for putting babies into orphanage for adoption. And that was complete like a separate thing that came out of this policy. And I think that eventually became the structure of the film is like, to go deeper and deeper, to go into the consequences that we don't usually think about and don't recognize. I ask this question, just I want to put this in context. I'm not asking this question purely in terms of One Child Nation. It's something that's been on my mind a little bit. I don't know if you've seen, did you see the film that was at Cannes, the, the For Sama, the Syrian movie? I haven't. Okay. I... Uh, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. it's, it's this woman making a film mm-hmm. for her one, one-year-old, well, in the middle of... Um, the Aleppo um, bombings. And then, you know, I just saw Nightingale a few hours ago, and it's just something that's been on my mind. You know, the artist, the artist um, has a, that you, that you use has a a large trove of, um, I guess, photographs Mm -hmm. of, of the dead babies, of the discarded babies, of the way they are left. Um, And something it's, I'll be honest with you. When I saw that, I mean, I have some, you know, I have small children too. It, 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 I, you know, I was engrossed in your film and that was like a gut punch. And obviously there's, if you have documentation, use it, but there's something that that I've noticed. I'm wondering if you could think talk a little bit in terms of that process, because that is a choice. You can establish that this was real, that there is documentation, but that element of showing something like that, because I, I I know those images must be incredibly disturbing to you as well. Um, that element of, of, of really, I'm thinking of myself as an audience of what it does to me. And I'm wondering, I'm thinking about, I'm wondering your thought process in terms of, of, of putting that stuff in there. Um, from the moment that I knew those exist and I saw those, um, in fact, some of the photos were on the internet before we were making this film because the artist had posted it on the internet himself. And that's actually how we got to know him and eventually reached out to him and um, filmed him. Um, from the, like the very early on when I saw those on the internet, I knew that I was going to put this in the film. I wanted to film him and put this in the film. And although this became a point of a discussion among the team, among even funders, because how disturbing those images um, could be, and we actually received an R rating because of some of the images, um, sadly, because um, that's the reality. <laughs> a lot of um, fictional films had a much more violent and not rated R. Um, and as I said, that there was some discussion among the team and funders and everything to discuss whether we should include this. And I always believed that we should because that's what happened and that was the reality and the world needed to see and why the filmmakers should censor something Mm -hmm. on behalf of the government it's not on behalf but it's like for their benefit if we were censoring like how would people in the world know how would people in the future generations know how would this part of history be really truly reflected and documented and that's our responsibility 
to not shy away from the brutality of the history, the policy. Is it fair to say you were describing kind of um, the, this this layer of I don't know if it's denial or it, growing up in a propaganda society, or but but this element of like the way that your relatives and people in, in the society deal with this is part is, is something like that also take a little bit of hammer to that like in that sense of like you can be so desensitized Mm -hmm. that that something like this doesn't it's hard it's hard to remain desensitized when you see that Mm -hmm. um yes i think that's like the job of like a filmmaker and storytellers how they show things like that how Mm -hmm. they show violence and how they what context they show it um i think when those photos were just on the internet and everywhere, mm-hmm. um, people see it and they don't respond to it mm-hmm. because it's another image that they see. And uh, for example, um, spoiler alert, like in our film, the artist had the jars that had fetuses in there that preserved. And when he put the images on the internet, a lot of people probably saw it and then just uh, dismissed it and when we were filming it I really wanted like one thing that I told myself is I wanted to show this baby as if they were alive and to remind people the warmth and um, the beauty of life so when you are seeing that you are not seeing death you are seeing what it potentially could be and that was eventually how it is shown how it was shot and I think because of the context and we try to make people the way that we want them to see it and the way that we want these images to have mm-hmm. an impact on them. Mm-hmm. Got it. Um, well, you know, if people go back and listen to the conversation that we had a couple of years ago, um, your story of becoming a filmmaker and, and, and learning filmmaking and, and the way that you approached it is, is, is fascinating. I, I'm curious because I see growth as a filmmaker. I, I'm curious what, you know, this film, how do you see yourself growing as a filmmaker? I mean, there is always these subjects and how you're going to handle these subjects, but I'm talking about actually just the, how you're going to film things. And once again, you're not dealing once again with ideal situations, um, uh, you know, of, of how you're going to do it. But I mean, have you found your instincts and your approach and how you're going to use the camera in relationship to your subjects kind of changing and evolving? That's interesting. You said you said you saw growth. I was like, I'm so curious. Mm-hmm. I wanted to know what did you see? Because I'm, it's hard for me to, to, uh, to identify or pinpoint like what, how I had to grow. And I almost couldn't like, it's almost like looking at yourself and see how, what you have changed. And that's hard. And while other people like you haven't seen you for two mm-hmm. years, were like, Oh, you've changed so much. Mm-hmm. And you feel like, what? So it's not necessarily conscious change. It's yeah. more, it's more just um, like, if you run a lot, you're going to get faster. <laughs> <laughs> or like if you eat a lot, you, <laughs> you gain weight, <laughs> but like you yourself is so subtle. Like right, I, right. but like there was a conscious choice. I made and uh, making with every film that I work on. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to um, consciously thinking I wanted to, if I'm, if I decide to work on a project, so that project needs to have an aspect of challenge that I have never, this is like intentionally choosing mm-hmm. it that I have not dealt with before. Um, 
creatively or like even on the like other side. So for example, um, Hooligan Sparrow was a kind of like a spontaneous thing that happened. I didn't know it was going to be a film and then eventually it became a film. So the challenges in that film was like enormous. But then the second film was um, kind of, there wasn't a natural transformation in the character. There wasn't a natural arc in a way that in Hooligan Sparrow there was arrest, release, and then every event is followed to the previous event. And in I'm Another You, what happened was a lot of people actually, when I was making it, they respond, oh, the character like never changed. Like four mm -hmm. years later, he's still the same lifestyle. He's the same him. So it's lacking of the natural sense of a storytelling, you would say like the transformation. So that was a creative challenge. Mm -hmm. And then after that, the One Child Policy film, I, I was thinking, okay, like this is gonna be challenging because I've never worked on a film where there isn't a central main character, mm -hmm. where it's like a character driven. One Child Policy is massive, it's, it's over three decades. It affects everyone's lives in in China and everyone could be a character. It's an ensemble of like mm -hmm. all the different people, how their lives were affected. And that was a creative challenge. And I think the next, I'm working on two things that right now. One is in Cuba and it's a language I don't speak. And I consciously like, okay, how am I gonna work on the film that I can't speak the language? Can I do it? How would I do it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think every project needs to have, for me, like to get excited or like to feel excited mm -hmm. is um, there is something that I don't know how to do. What are you doing in Cuba? Um, no, okay, <laughs> all right. Uh, but is it, and there's two things you're working on? Um, is there another thing you're working on? You said? Yeah, okay. it's a documentary series. Of, oh, uh, okay. six parts. Okay. Are you able to say you, we can cut this out. Are you able to say anything about any of this or no? Uh, not publicly because okay. it's not like well, I, this is going to yeah. go on iTunes, so we should probably. Yeah. <laughs> but but by then, yeah. Yeah. by by the by this year, yeah. I think that would be already the news would come out about the series. Okay. Mm. All right, Nafu. Congratulations on this film. It's fantastic, and um, yeah, I think I think uh, yeah, I think it's going to be it's going to be really interesting to see how people react to this and how the world reacts to it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.